Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, Old Testament. Prophet there, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. And so I know for some of you are like, wait a minute, we finished Acts? Yeah, you hadn't been here in a while. We finished Acts a few weeks ago, and uh, we are in a short little series here uh, called Under the Word. And this is, uh, this is a little different for us. Typically, we preach through books of the Bible, which we're going to pick back up next week um, when we begin the study in the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi, Minor Prophet. So we'll spend some weeks there studying through Malachi. But we wanted to, to finish up this series on God's Word uh, this morning. And so we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we will just walk through those, those first eight verses is how we'll unpack that this morning. So to catch some of you up to speed and where we've been over the last uh, handful of weeks in this series, we have been establishing um, the authority of God's word. Um, we make a lot of claims here at the Park Church. Even when I just said about like, hey, most of our time, meaning like 99% of the time, we preach through books of the Bible. And uh, we do that because we believe that this is God's inerrant, sufficient word of God to us and for us and toward us. And it is worthy of our study. It's worthy of our obedience. Um, so we make that claim. Uh, if you are a covenant partner or a member here at the Parks Church, the very first thing that you'll read on our covenant partnership is that we believe, and you're affirming as a member or covenant partner here at the Parks Church, that the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, are the final arbiter on all matters of life. Like, it's, it's it. It's the final thing. Like, if, if we're wrestling through something, we're, we're, we need to look into something. There is a, a disagreement. There is even... In agreement, right? We need to look at the word of God and say, okay, what, what do the scriptures say about this? Because this is our authority. And it's our authority because of the author of the scriptures. That we believe that, that this isn't just 66 books written for us to uh, gain intellectual assent to something. But this is literally God's living, active word toward us and for us today. And so um, we, we also made the case really in week one... Um, that, that we often seek out other authorities. Typically, the authority in our life is, is, is who? Me, I, us, right? We. Um, you're the authority. You're kind of the ruling authority in your life. And, and, and Sam, in that sermon, made the case to say, hey, we make really bad authorities. We make terrible authorities. So we need a, an authority outside of ourselves. And so that is why as a community, as a church, as a people collectively gathered, we said, listen, we are a people under the word of God. We're a people clinging in desperate need to that authority, right? That beautiful, good, right authority, right? That sometimes culture rejects, that sometimes um, um, people around you might go, why, why do you believe that? Why, why, why would you do that? Well, we do that because we sit under the word. And we talked about the reliability, right? If this is our authority, can we really trust the scriptures? Is it reliable? Is it all of those things that people have questions about the word of God? We, we talked through that. And, and then also uh, the last week or the last week we were gathered in here. And we talked about what the word, when, it, when we are living under it, what it produces. And we looked at Psalm 19 about what the word of God, when we as a people live under it, what it produces. Okay. And a lot of it has been uh, pretty uh, personal. It's been pretty individual. This week, one of the things I, I want to do is I want to look more communal at a, a people, right, a church under the word. And uh, we're going to look in, in Nehemiah at, at that. And, and one of the things we are committed to here at the Parks Church, and if you're new, you really need to get a hold of this, is this idea of a convergence. And what do I mean by convergence? I mean a coming together, a, 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 a marrying, if you will. 
of being a, a church that is very serious about the word of God. And I hope you're picking that up even, even in this intro. But also a church who is very serious about the presence of God, meaning the Holy Spirit. That we desire a church and a community of people who are, yes, serious about the word of God, but who also in their lives understand the person and work of the spirit in a mighty way. And that's, that's something really um, I love about this, this faith community is, is a lot of times I'll hear people and what they observe is, yes, that we, we, we do uphold uh, the scriptures and the way that we do and the right teaching of them. But we also allow for the spirit's movement, right? We allow for the spirit to do what he wants to do, right? The Trinity is God, the father, God, the son, and God, the the Holy Scriptures, right? That is what the... No, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Some of you are like, wait a minute, what? That's some messing with some of your theology. No, it's the person of the Holy Spirit. We want him to illuminate the Scriptures. We want him to move and to operate as he sees fit. And God, thankfully, has given us his, his way and how he does that, right? If things step outside of what the book says about the Holy Spirit, then we go, that's probably not from God because this is God disclose communication to us, but we want to be a people serious about the word and serious about the spirit. And we see that in a profound way in Nehemiah chapter eight. Okay. And so this is the old Testament. So we're gonna have to dig a a little bit deeper than, than maybe uh, you're used to on a Sunday morning, but I want to set a high level here of context for Nehemiah. So Israel and Judah split into two uh, separate nations in 930 BC. And each of those nations were taken captive and put into exile by uh, the Babylonians and by the Assyrians. Well, when we come to Nehemiah, that the duration of that, and God has used uh, the the Persians at this point to to reunify, to bring back the people of God together. So when we're in Nehemiah, and most of you know the book of Nehemiah uh, because of uh, the rebuilding of the wall. That's what you associate with the book of Nehemiah or the person of Nehemiah. Well, if you, you, you look in the Hebrew scriptures... Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. They, they go together and they tell this story of God and, and God's people coming back. And yes, the wall being rebuilt. But if you, you, you really study in depth the book of Nehemiah, you could divide it into two parts. The first seven chapters are about Nehemiah rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Because when they were taken captive, everything in Jerusalem was leveled. The walls of the city, right? The security, all of those things were just plundered and destroyed. And now there is this rebuilding taking place. I'll tell you, and, 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 and I've been reading some different things on, and we've talked about this a little bit here about renewals and revivals. And one author, he makes the case about the church, meaning us. To say that the church is at its best when they're in a rebuilding phase. The church is at its best, meaning it's its strongest and its healthiest. Now, it doesn't mean numerically it's it's growing up and to the right, but it's its strongest and its healthiest when when it's rebuilding. And I think it's because they are so dependent on God moving before them. And we see that in the book of Nehemiah, that, that, that Nehemiah endeavors for God to move before him to build this wall. However, after the first seven chapters, there's another half to the book. In chapter 8, what we're going to look at this morning is really a pivot. And so it moves from Nehemiah building this wall and this structure to now God's people needing a reviving of worship. And so the latter half of Nehemiah is not about the, the uh, structures or the security or the financial stability. It is about the worship the reviving of worship, the right response to God. That's what worship is, right? It's, it's about this proper view and surrender to the person of God as authority. And God does it. 
God restores, God revives worship in his people. You see, as we, we end this series or this talk, this has been my prayer is that he would revive us. That he would revive us as a community, that he would revive us as a church. And I don't know when I say the word revival, if there are some maybe definitions or preconceived things that come to mind. Some of you are smiling. Yeah, yeah, like you're like me, like where revival was like scheduled, you know, like, all right, we're gonna have revival from Monday to Saturday or, you know, however the spirit leads, maybe for five and a half weeks. Right. Uh, First off, you can't schedule revival. Okay. Revival is something that God does in his sovereign way and his sovereign plan. That's how revival happens. But he does revive. Psalm 19.7, one of the verses we looked at last week, it says that the law of the Lord is perfect. This is the first half. Reviving the soul. Revival is a biblical word. Revival is something we see happen over and over again in Scripture. You see, revival in its purest sense is simply this, the intensification of what God is always doing. That's what revival is, right? It's this magnification. We've used this word before. It's the acceleration of what God is always doing. And so in Nehemiah 8, it's not something new that God is doing, but it is an intensification to what God is always doing. And when we see revival, when we see, I would argue, reviving of the church, here's here's what happens. It, It wakes up the lethargic, the nominal shift, The sleepy, meaning the spiritual sleepy, not just the physical sleepy, wake up to the goodness and grace and power of God. People are revived. But in revival and in renewals, there are always two things that are present. And these two things probably will not surprise you. Always. Prayer and the word of God. Right? Not rocket science, right? Prayer and the word of God always mark revival and renewal. You see, in Nehemiah, the things that God has always been doing, he slides a magnifying glass over for a community, for a group of people. You see, this is, and I want to echo Psalm 126. The heart of Psalm 126 is this, Lord, we've seen you do it before. God, we've seen your hand move in power. We have seen revival. We have seen renewal in a people. We have seen you revive worship and restore worship in a land. Do it again. That's Psalm 126. Do it again, Lord. Do it at the Parks Church. Do it in this community. Start with McKinney, Texas. Revive us as a people under your word. Well, now, what does it look like? To be a people, and really these points, there's four points I want to draw out from here. These points really are prayers. They're longings that I think we'll we'll observe from this word. As a people is serious about sitting under the authority of the word as a community. And so the first one is this in verses 1 and 2, and we we can read it. And all the people gathered, this is Nehemiah 8.1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So what's taking place here? It said all the people. In the first 12 verses of Nehemiah chapter 8, the word people 
or all people is used 13 times. So hear, hear me, God is, God is the center of this passage, but the emphasis that the writer is putting is on the people, on the community, on the number of people who are coming together to hear Ezra, to hear from the word of God. So, so, so most scholars believe that when it says all people, it means all people, right? Like the word all means all. You know how many people that is? That's between 30 and 50,000 people in this area would have gathered at Watergate. 30 to 50,000 people coming together to hear the word of God. Now, what does verses 1 and 2 say? Verses 1 and 2 say that they called, that the people, that the community, this 30 to 50,000 people called and said, listen, we want Ezra. We want him to come. And we don't just want him to show up, right? We want him to bring the book. Did you see that? In verse 2, here's what we want from Ezra. We want the book. We want the word of God. Can you imagine this scene? Are you, like All the people gathered. You go throughout the city. Like, you're trying to pick up a loaf of bread. You're trying to you know, get some gas. Like, where is everybody? Like, wh- wh- why is the city shut down? Oh, they're, they're over there at Watergate. They're calling for the word. They're calling for, for the, the scriptures to go forth. And so point number one about a community under the word is this. Is that they eagerly desire it. That a community that is serious about God's authority in his scriptures is that they want it. They hunger for it. That they're willing to go, get Ezra and tell him to bring the book Tell him to bring the books. And, and, and what he means here is the book of Moses is the first five books, the Pentateuch. Get the first five books. That's what we, we want to hear. Right? The, the, and, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East. Okay? But you can imagine this is not a big geographic space here at Watergate. But to slam thirty to 50,000 people into it in the Middle East for six hours. That's what the beginning of, of verse 3 says. Right From early morning to midday, that's six hours that Ezra is going to preach, to read from the book with 30 to 50,000 people. Do you think they're comfortable? Right? <laughs> no. Do they care? No. Why? Because their physical comfort is secondary to their spiritual hunger and their appetite for the word of God. Right? There's this intensification that this sea of people are literally calling Ezra, bring the word. Bring it. We want it. We, we, we desire it, right? This is, this is echoes of Psalm 63. My soul longs for you, O Lord. It thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land. These people are going, we're thirsty. We long for it. And the only thing that can quench our thirst is you, O Lord. Ezra, bring the word. Now, let's pick up a little... Uh, bit of context on Ezra. It's interesting. This is the book of Nehemiah, right? Carries Nehemiah's name. But here, Ezra. Ezra is, is, is the preacher. Ezra is the Bible teacher, if you will. Okay? And so this might encourage you, for those of you who, who find yourself teaching the Word of God, for those of you who are disciple makers, those of you who are leading small group classes or praxis groups or whatever you, you might be. Ezra has been teaching, for this point, about 14 years. And up to this point, he has not seen anything like this. Right? 30,000 people going, bring the word. 
But he's always been doing this. He's always been preaching. He's always been bringing the book. He's always been delivering the word of God to his people. But in this occasion, there's something different happening. There's something different occurring. How many of you um, have heard the sermon, Sinners, not heard it, but you're familiar with this, at least in title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How many of you have heard that title of the sermon, right? The reason you are familiar with that title is because it was preached by a man named Jonathan Edwards. The reason you know about that sermon is from his second time preaching it. The people's response, it was just this overwhelming. The first time he preached that sermon, let me tell you, like, like historians would tell us, it was a flop for all intents and purposes. Like it, it, it just, you know, went over like a lead balloon. Okay. Like it didn't go. But the second time in Connecticut, Infield, Connecticut, he preached it again. And the hearts of the people, it says, were like cut to the core. And there was this confession and this repentance. There was this reviving. Why? Because Edwards was faithful. Can you imagine like how many of you have ever been in that maybe discouraged place where you teach the word of God or you're leading a group of people through the scriptures. And you're like, Lord, what are you doing? You see, this picture with Ezra, again, is a picture of faithfulness. For 14 years, and now he's seeing this. So it could be said that literally in six hours, Ezra is seeing more impact. More impact than he saw in 14 years. I love what the book of Ezra says about Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. This is the heart of Ezra. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Listen, that, that is the profile of a teacher. And I, I don't mean someone who just preaches on a Sunday morning like in the role that I am. But as you open the word of God, as you're in your gospel community, as you, you are with your, your, your community opening the word of God, that, that is our heart, that we, that we study it, that we intently know it. And then we, what does it say? Notice that, what's in the middle there? We do it. We're practitioners, right? We're not just studying it so that we have something good to communicate, Okay. We're not just studying it going, okay, so I need something to say. And I know many of you have done this before. I just got to have something to say to this group. But we study it, ask the Spirit to transform us, and then we teach it. That's what I pray. Every time I open the Word of God, every time I put pen to paper to teach, I say, Lord, run this through me first. Lord, do this in me first. Lord, where is my life incongruous with what your Word is saying? Show me. How to be obedient before I dare step into a place to teach someone else. How hypocritical is it of us to study it and teach it and not do it? It's a warning. But for Ezra, we saw his faithfulness, studying it, living it out, teaching it. And then in this season, with this community of people, there was this heightened receptivity and renewed responsiveness to the word of God. Now, one of the things in verse 1, I want you to see, and this is, goes back a little bit to my introduction, is that they are not worshiping the Word of God. They're not worshiping the Scriptures, okay? They're not worshiping the Pentateuch, right? It says, they told Ezra to bring the book of the Law of Moses, and here's the phrase, how do we know that, Kyle? That the Lord had commanded Israel. Why do they want the book? Why do they want the Pentateuch? Why do they want this writing particularly? Because it's, what's, it's God's command to them. They know that this is literally God's word to them. So who are they wanting? They're wanting God. 
And what do they know? That God has spoken through Moses, that God speaks through his word. So they're like, bring the book because we know when we get God's word, we get God. We hear God. We hear his plan. So there's this eager desire to know the author, not to know uh, just mere knowledge accumulation. They don't want the book so that they can win an argument. They want the book because they want more of God. That's what an eager community longs for. A community who understands the word of God, a community who's sitting underneath the word of God. They're eager for it. Like we want the book. Bring the book. Do you desire the word of God like that? Like the eagerness of these 30,000 plus people in the heat of the sun. We long for it. We need it. We want to know God. We want him to restore us. We want him to revive us. It's not going to happen apart from his word. Ezra, bring the book. You see, here's where the power of the community comes into play. Can you imagine being in the middle of that crowd? I don't know if they were chanting Ezra. I don't know if they were chanting the book. I don't know what they were doing, but there had to be a buzz. Like when you get around people who are hungry and who have an appetite for the things of God, the word of God, guess what? It becomes contagious. Have you been caught up in one of those moments? Just like... I, I, sporting maybe, right? I, I can remember being at a, a Cowboys game when I first moved here. I, Cowboys, they're okay for me now, right? I'm still a diehard Chiefs fan, but I was at a Cowboys game. Okay, I know I lost some of you right there. Okay, like stick with me, all right? I'm there, Cowboys Stadium. Not a Cowboys fan, right? I don't even care who they're playing. Like I'm just rooting for them, okay? Then all of a sudden I was like caught up in the moment with all these Cowboys fans, right? Cheering for the Cowboys, right? What? I just bought in to the community Kool-Aid right then, right? Where I'm like, yeah, cowboys. I'm like, what? I don't even care, you know? Can you imagine, though, this context with 30,000 people, and they are desiring, they're hungering, they're thirsting for the word of God to speak to them, right? That's going to wake up the lethargic. That's going to wake up the nominal. Like, the Spirit's going to use that. He uses the community to shake us and to wake us. That is why this is so important for this not to be a siloed, just a personal thing. This must be communal. Calling one another. Drawing one another into the Word of God. Second, the people weren't just eager for the Word of God. The people listened to the Word of God attentively. Now back to verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square before Watergate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Literally, that's everybody. Men, women, and and children, probably. And the ears of all the people were what? Attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wood platform that they made for this purpose. Okay? Okay. So this goes beyond, in a community who sits under the word, this goes beyond just a desire and an eagerness to actually paying attention to the word of God, okay? That this is not uh, just just a, a, a superfluous word added in here, that this word attentive is purposeful. That this community wasn't just eager, but they were really, really attentive. They were locked into the word of God going forth from Ezra. See, as a community sitting under the word of God, we should always bring a predetermined commitment to obey the word as we hear it and as we read it. Hear me. I use my words very purposefully there. A predetermined commitment. 
That there was preparation that goes into when we walk into a praxis group, when we walk into a Bible study, when we walk into a Sunday morning, a gathering like this where we are predetermining to believe and obey the scriptures. A predetermined commitment? Really, Kyle? Where's the room for the spirit in that? Or what if I disagree with it? Authority. Where's the authority resting in that situation? And hear me. You're going to disagree with it. Your flesh is going to reject and to to want to push back against the things that this authority, the word of God, lays out for us. It happens all the time. That's why I have to set in my mind and my heart as I approach the scriptures in community and even personally, yes, to go, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to obey. No matter what my flesh feels, I'm going to obey you and trust you because I know you're good. I know you're perfectly holy. I know you're right. Is there a predetermined commitment to obey the word of God? Is there this attentiveness to agree with what God says? We have a team from our church uh, right now, um, and my wife's on that trip. They're spending two weeks in Sierra Leone, Africa. And they sent pictures back and, and they brought 40 Bibles with them to distribute and to, to do a Bible class. And they just sent a picture over just showing what's going on. And I can't even describe to you the attentiveness of these girls and these young women as they open their Bibles, as the, the word of God is being taught. I mean, it is, it is ferocious. I, wish, I should have brought the picture with me, but come back for second service. I'll have it there. But there is just this locked inness. There's this attentiveness to hear the word of God. And one of my fears with us hear me, is that we are so familiar with the word of God. I'm not saying that we are overly obedient to it. I'm just saying we're inundated with great teaching from podcasts and books and all just this, this buffet of things that we're so familiar with it that that familiarity has led to apathy. That's what happens. And the enemy loves that, to lull us to sleep while listening to one of the greatest sermons ever preached, right, on a podcast or reading it in a book, right? Just lulls us to sleep. God, help us for our familiarity not to lead to a spiritual apathy. God, wake us up as a community. Make our hearts attentive. And listen, a lack of attentiveness reveals that this is not a moment or season of revival. That in a season of revival, there is, a, there is an attentiveness that is unique, that is foreign, that is like what we read here in Nehemiah 8, where everybody is listening. That there's sensitivity in our hearts to what is being said through the word of God. Let me tell you, the best moments in sermons, in teachings, small group, gospel community, whatever, when you're opening your Bibles with other people, the best moments are not when you are taking notes. The best moments are when the word of God is piercing you and your heart is stirred with worship. Where there's this sensitivity, where there's there's maybe weeping and confession, where there's overwhelming sense of joy. How many of you have ever been in those places? Some of you are like, Kyle, that, that happens? You see, when you don't have the convergence of the word and spirit, it oftentimes doesn't happen. Kyle, what's What's that like? I can tell you about a, a moment where that happened. For me and a small group of men, our elders, actually, in January. Right? We're, we're not preaching sermons to one another. We're literally sitting there in our room reading John chapter 17. 
Jesus' high priestly prayer. And what I mean is literally we're just reading it, each taking a section and reading it. And the power of God moved in a profound way, piercing our hearts. Where tears began to stream down. I'm like, I don't even know why I'm crying right now. The Spirit began to move in our hearts and our lives. We began sharing, bringing our gifts, spiritual gifts, saying, Lord, you're doing something unique. Why? Because we were just submitting to his word. Attentive to his spirit moving. Not looking forward to the next thing, but being there present in his word. Listen, God moves like that. He moves when we come as a community underneath it. And it's beautiful. Kyle, is that normative? Is that normal? No. Not in terms of, I think, what we experienced in January or what they're experiencing here in Nehemiah 8. But it is powerfully and profoundly formative. That I'll never go back to John 17 with the same lenses I've read it before after that moment. And I'm sure these people who gathered here, 30, 50,000 plus, who heard the word of God go forth in power, reshaping them and moving in their heart, would never forget that moment. That's what God does. God moves in power. Is God moving in power normative? Yes. The way it looks, different. But are we a people attentive? Listen, these people were so serious about hearing the word of God and being attentive to it, they built him a wood platform. I love this. <laughs> Did you see that? It's like, and he preached from a wood platform that they had built. So it's like they were thinking, right, that predetermination, like we're going to hear from the word of God. So we're going to build them a platform because we know there's going to be a lot of people so that we can hear, so that we can be focused. And I think also this is a picture and why it's included in Nehemiah of the picture of being under the word. So the word of God is going forth to these people who sit under it going, listen, we want to receive from that. It's this beautiful picture of this entire series that we're preaching. The people are under the word, receiving from God. They're eager. They're, 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 they're attentive. Now, listen, there are a lot of things to distract us in this world, right? Some of you are even distracted in this, this teaching, right? Your phones, calendars, agendas, stresses, things of this life. But there are things biblically that keep you from listening attentively. Anger. That's James 1, a critical spirit, unbelief. Jesus, in teaching the parable of the sower, says that these things go out, but the cares of the world does what to the word of God? Chokes it out. God, help us to be a people who are not just eager for the word of God, but attentive, locked into what he's saying. Third, the people... The community worship in response to the word expressively. Let's, let's look at this. Verse 5 and 6. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God. And all the people answered, Amen. Amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
how many different physical postures are happening in that moment as Ezra begins to preach, as Ezra begins to read from the book, right? They stood. That's the first one. A sign of, of reverence, right? And then Ezra, notice it says that Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God. What's happening here? Well, we're not sure. We're not sure if this is a prayer from Ezra. We're not sure if this is like shouts of praise to God from Ezra that he's leading. We're not sure if he, he's, he's just spontaneously uh, worshiping God with his voice. Or, which is his possibility, he is recounting or saying Psalm 119. We don't know who wrote Psalm 119. The one that we read through week one, at least Sam told you to read through. It's oftentimes credited Psalm 119 to Ezra. So imagine this, 30, 50,000 people. He's reading the book of Moses and then he just breaks out into Psalm 119. Right? This is the word of God, so it's still appropriate for me to do this from Ezra. Listen, with my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your works. My eyes are awake before the watches of night, that I may meditate, meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near those who persecute me with evil. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known, longed for your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Imagine Ezra saying that. Imagine him giving that speech, that prayer, and the whole body. Look, what does it do? They say what? Amen. Amen. There is this expression. Some of you are like, what, Kyle? Are you trying to turn us into a bunch of charismatics? Well, if that's what a bunch of charismatics look like, then yes and amen. People who respond expressively to the word of God. And let me just tell us something. This is not our strength, church. Okay? And even a little shocked me a little during worship. We had a little chatter. I was like, okay, we got an amen. But this is what happens when the word of God moves in power. You can't help but physically respond. That they stood up. That they said, amen. Amen. They lifted their hands. There was something physical that happened in them to respond to God. You say, whoa, Kyle, again, slow down. You see, there is something to worshiping the Lord with our whole bodies. And most of the time, this kind of physical response is tied to singing worship. Right? And not teaching worship. But here it is tied to teaching worship. You see, I'll meet with folks and they'll say something to the effect of, you know, I, I'm just not at the lifting of my hands place yet. You know, like a lot of people in church lift their hands. I'm just not there yet. For whatever reason, they may say, I feel like a phony. It's not in my character. It's not how I grew up. Well, it might not be in your character, but it is in the character of God. It is in God's heart for you to express worship with your hands lifted. To, for you to verbally uh, affirm, I need that. That's right. That's good. You see, this group of people, they, they didn't care what those around them thought. They were most consumed and concerned with honoring and worshiping God. Now hear me. 
I am not advocating disorderliness or chaos in a gathering or in community. But what I am advocating is responsiveness to the word of God, a seeing and sensing what is taking place in our midst, that we'd worship God with our whole being. So get this line. Ezra preaches. He blesses God. The people say amen. They're lifting their hands. And it says they're also doing what? Bowing their heads and their faces to the ground. There's like this simultaneous joy and reverence. Agreement and awe. And this is a beautiful picture of how God in heaven speaks to us on earth through his word. And as he speaks to us, hear me, it should have an impact on us. That God's word is a gift and a privilege. That he is infinitely good and infinitely wise and we would be fools not to listen to him. Isaiah 55 says this. This is the word of the Lord. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is the word of God. That's what we sit under. That's what we participate in as a community. That's what happens when you crack open your Bible every morning, when you get into praxis group or you get into formation group or whatever gospel community you're in. The word of God is going forth. And then my last point here, we'll wrap up and take communion is that there's a list of names here. Do you see that? Verses 7 and 8, and then all the way back up in verse 4. There's about 20 plus names listed here. Men who flanked Ezra on his left and his right, and men who went out, and people who went out. And what did it say about this community? It says that this community, these people, Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That they understood the word of God communally. That it wasn't just Ezra, wasn't just Nehemiah. That this thing of endeavoring to know the word of God, to sit under the word of God rightly and correctly, is a community project. That they understood the word in community. That understanding the word of God rightly takes a community. We're in this together. That there's safety in that. There's joy in that. There's pushing. There's striving in that. So church, I want, as we finish this, series. My prayer is that we would be people individually, 
yes, who, who submit to the authority of the scriptures, who understand what God is writing and the story he's writing, that we would be a people who meditate on it day and night. But also, that we would be a community like the one pictured here in Nehemiah 8 that's hungry, that's ready, attentive, that longs for the word of God to nourish us and feed us, to strengthen our weary bones, that we would be in this together, that we'd look around and we would see a community committed to this kind of living, this way of life under the word, that we'd be responding to it more than just, and listen, I love that you take notes, right? But you don't always have to amen to every sermon by taking notes, right? You can respond. That when we sing and worship, you can respond with the freedom that Christ gives you so that we might know the joy of our salvation. And so if you have, uh, I'm going to invite you to grab communion this morning. And um, this is the only thing here at the Parks Church that we do that's closed. And what I mean by that is um, communion is reserved for those people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And uh, if that's not you, um, my prayer is that this morning it would be you. That you'd hear about the word of God and you'd not think about just some pages, some, some words on a page, but you'd think about the living word of God, Christ, the word made flesh, who has redeemed us who fulfilled Isaiah 55. Every word that is written will be fulfilled. The word that was written to say there'll be a redeemer and there'll be a savior and his name is Jesus who came to live the life we couldn't and die the death we deserved. I pray today you put your faith and trust in him and you join us maybe for the first time in taking communion. For those of you who are Christ followers, I'd invite you to take this with me and stand with me as we prepare to partake. The bread in which Jesus on the last night he was betrayed, sitting with his disciples. After giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he told his disciples that this broken bread represents his broken body, broken for them and here 2,000 years later for us as Christ followers, broken for us. And so we do this in remembrance of that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We take the broken body of Jesus Christ this morning. So can we take in community the bread together? In the same manner and fashion, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, my shed blood, the new covenant, the way in which you are now saved and brought into a relationship with God is through this. The only way, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so we take this cup this morning, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the new covenant by which we are saved. Let's take the cup together. In Parks Church, the only fitting response after taking communion is what? Worship. Let's lift our voices in worship and prayer. Father, we love you. God, thank you for Jesus, your son, who died so that we could have life. Lord God, I thank you for your word of God that is our anchor 
that is our, our authority, our navigation, God, because we don't see clearly, we don't feel clearly, Lord God, but your word is clear. And so, Lord, I pray that we would continue to hunger and thirst after you, knowing you more deeply. God, I pray even as we begin the journey walking through the book of Malachi, that it might speak to us in our hearts in this community, digging deep our roots in profound ways so that we might live and look more like Jesus, more today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we do today. For your glory, in Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.